Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. So I want to talk to you tonight about when you love an emotionally unhealthy person. Now, quickly, and I was thinking about this in the hotel today as I was kind of penciling a few notes in for this message, I I do want to make the point that there's a—I'm talking about a specific specific type of emotionally unhealthy person. See, the thing about emotionally unhealthy people, if if, if you're talking about somebody who is just going through a struggle, perhaps with depression or, or anxiety or some other mental health concern, or maybe they're just going through some relational difficulties, um, if they are humble um, and if they are willing to submit to the process uh, of, of working on what it is that they're dealing with, and when I say submit to the process, I, I mean just not, not fighting the process of getting better. Um, if they're willing to do that, um, the, your primary goal, I, I can give you this in just a few, few moments' time, your primary goal is just to get them the help they need. How can you help participate in getting them the help they need? I'm talking about a very specific kind of emotionally uh, unhealthy person in tonight's talk, and that is uh, a person who is, well, let me put it this way. The person I'm talking to you tonight about is a person who is stubbornly choosing to do the wrong thing and is hurting themselves and others. Um, I did a series on this at New Spring, and, and uh, uh, Pastor Jay will have the link if you want it, but we called the series Desperado. I don't know if there are any Eagles fans in the room. You remember that old, that old t- tune? Um, but I always thought that song sounded an awful, awful lot like the prodigal son. A lot of the lyrics did, and so we, we did a series called Desperado and based it off of that. But that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the desperado in your life. Who is the person in your life that is making bad choices? I mean, now, by the way, um, quickly, the difference between an unhealthy person um, and a person who is healthy, it's not whether or not you make mistakes, because we realize that we all make mistakes, right? All of us do things that aren't good. The difference is that, and, and this is, by the way, the, the, the picture in Proverbs of the wise person and the fool. A wise person can be instructed when they make a mistake. A wise person can receive, they, they can receive, they may not love receiving that feedback, but they will take it in they will digest it, they will work with it, and they will begin to acclimatize themselves to, how can I do this better? A fool, on the other hand, will not listen when they are instructed. The scripture is very clear about that. And they cannot be reasoned with. So who is it in your life that's making bad decisions? It's hurting them. Clearly, it's hurting them. I mean, how many times have you seen that person and you think, I can see where they're going. I can see where this is leading. I can see where, the, but they can't. Why can't they see that? It's like that line in the song. Why don't you come to your senses? Why can you not see where you're going? And yet they are determined to keep going down that path, stubbornly. You can afford in this world to be stubborn and right, or you can be dumb and wrong, or excuse me, you can be, you can be humble and dumb, or humble and wrong. And so my dad's told me my whole life, he said, you can be, you can be humble and wrong, or you can, be, um, you, can be, you can be stubborn and right, but you cannot afford to be stubborn and wrong. And what do you do when you're dealing with somebody who's stubborn and wrong? That's what we're going to talk about. Um, And I will say, dealing with this kind of person, the reason that I thought I would speak to you tonight about this, dealing with this kind of person, if you're in a healthy place, but you're dealing with somebody in your life who's in an unhealthy place and making bad decisions, it leads to a lot of difficult questions. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us have learned that's true? It complicates life terribly when you're trying to figure out, what do I do with this person that's making bad choices? I don't know what to do with them, right? Remember, when I first started at New Spring, one of my first responsibilities that they gave me, I came in as assistant pastor, and I had just a 
list of things they wanted me to do, but one of those things was marital and premarital counseling. I was telling your pastor this, this, after, this uh, after the service at lunch today, that was kind of worrisome for me because, as, as I've mentioned in other sessions, Wendy and I had a really rough go of it when we first got started. We were in a much better place, and we were in a very healthy place at that time, but I thought, I don't know how to help these people, but I thought, I will figure it out as I go, right? That's comforting for you. I sit across from a pastoral counselor who's thinking, I'll figure this out as I go, right? Um, and I figured that I would be meeting with people who came in with, you know, we're having fights or, you know, we can't get along with the in-laws or whatever. I was kind of expecting that kind of thing. And God apparently decided to throw me into the deep end of the pool because my first week I had some of the craziest cases that I would have over the period of the 13 years I would do this. And one of them, first week, come, they come in, husband and, and wife, and um, she's weeping and he's telling me that he is having an affair with another woman. And I'm thinking that they're in here because he wants to end the affair and work on his relationship. And who knows whether um, there's the ability to heal, but I'm already getting geared up. She's like, okay, well, we're going to, and then he says, now I'm not going to leave the other woman. He said, but the thing is we have kids. And he said, I'm willing to stay with my wife for the sake of the kids, but I am going to stay with the other woman as well. And he's, and I remember he looked at her and he said, now that is the offer that is on the table. You can take it or leave it, but it doesn't matter much to me. Now that's an unhealthy person. And I remember, still with tears streaming down her eyes, she looked at me and she said, Pastor, what do I do with, with that? It creates complicated, well, I mean, it's not that complicated. I told her, I said, well, tell him when he can pick up his stuff, you know, but, um, but isn't it true that when you're dealing with an emotionally unhealthy person, so often you're asking that question, what do I do with that? They say or they do things that you just go, what do I do with that? Like, I don't know what to do with that. And we have these questions like, should I try to pressure them to change? When do you turn the other cheek and when do you set a firm boundary? How do you make them come to their senses? Spoiler alert, you can't. You cannot come to someone's senses for them. It doesn't work that way. If they change their hurtful behavior, what should my response be? I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this. Pastor Ryan, I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost cliche that there will, be, there will be a couple in the church, and uh, let, let's say he leaves her. She wants to go to counseling. She wants to work on it. She wants to try to save this marriage. He has nothing, he has no desire to do it. He leaves, he's gone. They end up divorced. And then a couple years later, she's in a dating relationship with this guy, much healthier relationship. They get engaged and guess who shows up the next day? The ex-husband shows up with a bouquet of flowers and a story about how his life has completely changed. And he says, I think we should reconcile. Now you want to talk about being confused that, that spouse who never wanted the divorce in the first place is knocking on our door at the church saying, what do I do with this? We're going to be talking in a minute about the story of the prodigal son. And because I don't want to forget to, to mention this, I want you to remember, in case I don't get to this, because I have a lot to cover in a short period of time, but in case I don't get to this, look at the very end of the story of the prodigal son. You see the part about the older brother. The older brother gets really upset. Now, usually when pastors preach about the older brother, the part with the older brother, they're talking about the Pharisees self-righteousness and, and unwillingness to recognize that God wants to reconcile and redeem. That's what the whole chapter is about, is that God is looking for chances to reconcile. Pharisees were looking for chances to look good. God is looking for opportunities to redeem. And so he was trying to emphasize that the Pharisees were in the wrong state of mind. But I do want you to notice, when the son comes up to the father and says, look at this party you've thrown for, for my brother, and you haven't done these things for me, what does he say? He says to his older son, he says, all that I have is yours. You know what that means? He's saying, I cannot magically wave a wand and recreate what was lost in the far off country. 
I cannot, I cannot somehow undo the consequences of what was, what was done. By the way, it's one of the be- biggest lessons we can teach our, our, our kids and our teenagers is there are, there are things that you can do that you cannot get back. There are things that you can do that, you, that, that there can be forgiveness, there can be celebration, there can be restoration, but there cannot be recreation of what was lost. But the best place I know to go in the Bible for this is Luke 15. By the way, um, that's what I did that day when that couple was sitting in my office. I went to Luke 15. <clears throat> again, new counselor, didn't know what to do, but I went to Luke 15. Then I, when I, 13 years counseling over and over again, Luke 15, Luke 15, there's a worn spot in the, in the spine of my Bible, Luke 15. And in case you're wondering, we're in Luke 15 tonight is where we will be. Um, talking about a story of a prodigal son, I wish we had time to go over all three vignettes of God's restoration of what is lost. But let's start in verse 11, shall we? Jesus is teaching, and he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And I'm going to try to speed through this. I have a lot of things I could say about this, but I will say, sometimes people act like this is unheard of for a a child to ask for their part of the inheritance. Actually, there's a little bit of backstory here. First of all, you should know that the rules of the time uh, were that if you had two sons, the older son got the majority of the, the estate, two-thirds of the estate. As the oldest son in my family, I think that's a spiritual and sacred way of doing things. I support it fully. Um, the, the, uh, the younger brother would get one-third, whatever, you know, the remaining part of the estate. Now, in the Israelite culture, or in the, the, the culture of, at this time, this would be some time after that, but in this culture, in the Jewish people, it would have been considered highly inappropriate to ask for your inheritance and to leave your family. But in other cultures around them, it was, it was not at all uncommon for somebody who was going to get a small portion of the inheritance to ask for it and to leave early. So what he's doing is he's doing something that would be common outside of their culture, outside of the Jewish people. But he's brought that in and he's asking for that. But what you should know is that then in this culture, it would have been incredibly disrespectful. What he is literally saying is, dad, you are simply not dying fast enough. I mean, you're looking a little haggard, I'll give you that, but you're, you're, you're not dying fast enough, and I want my money because I want to go do stuff. The Bible says he, he, the father, divided unto them his living, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. I don't know exactly what all is involved in riotous living, but if you, uh, and I want to be genteel with, with some kids in the room, but uh, if you look at what his older brother had to say, he was into some not good stuff. How God loves unhealthy emotional people. At least I I take this from the first part of this verse, and I take it from the rest of the story. How God loves emotionally unhealthy people tends to be different than how I would do it. That's the thing that strikes me so quickly when I read this story. First of all, here you have this son who goes up to his dad and says, I want you to give me my inheritance. If I'm the dad, now keep in mind, just, just quickly, just a review. The dad in this story represents God. The older brother represents the Pharisees. The prodigal son represents you and me, people who are separated from God and needed to come back and be reconciled to him. So God, the, God has represented, Jesus has represented God in the story as the father. If I am the father, I'm not writing the check. Isn't that fair? If your son who is a mess comes to you and says, I want my inheritance and I want it now, I'm just going to say no. It's in my power to say no. And I know you're such a little twerp. If I give you your inheritance, you're going to go out and do really, really bad stuff with it, and you're going to mess up your life, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give you the inheritance. That's what I would do. Second of all, I wouldn't have let him leave. If I see him headed for the door, I'm saying, "Uh uh-uh. I I would lock that kid in his room, push food under the door. (laughs) 
not letting you go. And I certainly, if I knew what he was doing in the far off country, I guarantee you I would have dragged him home. I would have gone and grabbed that kid by the ear and brought him back to where he needed to be. But notice the father doesn't do any of those things. Isn't it true that God, the way God treats an emotionally unhealthy person is somewhat counter to what we would do? Verse 13, not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living when he had spent all, and by the way, how many of us can testify to the fact that the money will run out? Just a lesson he hadn't learned yet. There arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. Don't miss this. This is the end of his dignity. The only person who would hire him is a person who thought it would be cool to have him for a joke. Have you seen the Jewish kid I have out feeding my pigs? It was, a, it was a joke. It was the only reason that he got hired. And the Bible says that he wished he could eat the carob pods that the, the pigs were eating. By the way, the way they would feed the, big, the pigs, they would take the carob pods. Now, some of y'all, if you're into natural foods, you know about carob. What they'll do is the carob has uh, seeds in it that taste very much like chocolate. And uh, it's, it's sweet, so it's worth dealing with the slimy husk that it comes in. But what they would do is they would strip out all the sweet part and take the slimy, bitter husk and feed it to the pigs. Is, I think there's symbolism here that the prodigal son was stuck with, with his life with all the sweetness had been stripped out of it, but now he's just trying to subsist on the bitter, slimy part that's left over. I'll tell you, one of the challenging things about being a person who's stubbornly doing the wrong thing is you will lose your dignity. You'll eventually lose your dignity over it. Well, I don't know about you, but this is when I would toggle into rescuing mode. I really would. If I knew my, my son was hungry, wanted to eat what the pigs were eating, I, I would totally have, have gone to, to pick him up. By the way, there's another lesson there as well, which is, the, the other lesson to this is that when a person is at that, at that dark place, and when they're experiencing that, I would just do anything to, to I'm, I'm trying to think about how to say this right. I'm talking to some parents in this room. I really feel the Holy Spirit lead me to say, I'm talking to some parents in this room that you would do anything to keep your kid from going through pain. You would do anything to keep your kid from going through pain. And the worst thing in the world would, is to see them hurting. It just, it just breaks your heart to see them hurting. But I have to tell you, the father understood that he didn't need to go running and picking up his son because somehow he was going to have to come to his senses. And sometimes it takes being in the pig pen of life to come to your senses. Sometimes it takes being in that really difficult place. Verse 17 says, when he came to himself, a good translation of that would be when he came to his senses. By the way, when we talk about coming to our senses, we're talking about, usually we're talking about starting to think correctly. But actually, coming to your senses is a term that came from the idea of becoming conscious again. When you're unconscious, you don't have your senses. You don't taste, touch, smell. And the idea of coming to your senses is that suddenly you become conscious again. Isn't that a biblical picture? So often we see sin as a sort of numbness, as a sleep, as being dead. There's this unconsciousness. And there's this moment at which this kid finally becomes conscious again and looks at his situation and says, I cannot believe I ended up here and I need to do something about it. This is why the father doesn't bail the son out, because there's going to have to be a moment where he comes to his senses. 
And he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. Mm. I have something to say about that, but let me, let me keep going. And say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He still would have been better off. Sometimes people run over that real quick. Well, now the father isn't going to want him to be a hired servant. Well, that's true, and that's true of the story. He still would have, he, he was right. There was a moment where sometimes you have to sink so low that you realize that b- being home is better regardless on what terms it is. Regardless on what terms I have to come back home, it's better. And by the way, we're going to come back to verse, if you're looking at your Bible, we're going to come back to verses 17 through 20 in just a second. Make me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a, a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Aren't you thankful that God will meet you halfway? And I don't mean halfway morally. God isn't saying, I'll compromise with you. What God is saying is, if you will come to me, remember what the scripture says, draw near to God and he will do what? He will draw near to you. So if you decide to run to God, God will run out to meet you. So the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf. We'll come back to it. There's a reason why that article does important there. The fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And now his elder son is going to snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. His elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what those things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother has come, and thy father hath killed the fattened calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years. Now he's a whiner. Older brother's a whiner. The Pharisees were whiners, you know. Uh, Professional church people, but whiners. Um, I don't know. Have you ever met a professional church person? You know, the, Jesus said about the Pharisees, they're really good at posing. They go into church, they go up to the front row, and they, they would do this. And by the way, the Pharisee prayer started off with, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else or a woman. Great guys. Wonderful guys. Uh, he said, he's whining, he said, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither, neither transgress thy at any time thy commandment, yet thou ne- never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son, he won't even call him his brother, as soon as this thy son has come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fattened calf. And the father said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. But it was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We come up with the, the words from Amazing Grace involve some of the scripture from the story of the prodigal son. How appropriate. Sometimes people ask me, do you know, how do you know if a person's really repentant? Well, first of all, we, we can't see someone's heart. That's clear. Scripture says that God looks on the heart, and we don't. So there's always going to be a greater level of knowledge that God has. Now, that is actually helpful for the repentant person. And here's the reason why. If a person is truly repentant, you get to start over with God on the day that you're truly repentant. But you may not get to start over with other people. Chances are you won't. Because the rest of the people in your life don't know whether it's real or not. You're going to have to establish a new track record with them. But the good news is you can start fresh with God the day that you repent because he sees your heart so he knows if it's real or not. But I will tell you, there have been some things that I've noticed with with people that I think are signs of being truly repentant, and they're all in this story. Can I show them to you really quickly? A really repentant person, number one, understands the father will not come to me. I need to go to them. 
He, notice he says, I will arise and go to the Father. He understands I, this is not a situation where I'm like, all right, I'm done, so they need to come pick me up. He says, I'm done, so I need to go home. The thing about God is his nature doesn't change. There's a reason why the Father stayed home, is his character remained the same, his person remained the same, his location remained the same. It's a wonderful thing because we always know where he can be found. But ultimately, God is not going to come to us in the pig pen. And unfortunately, we have a culture that is very busy trying to excuse some things, and part of the way that they're looking at it is, well, God will come to me in the pig pen. I'm sorry, God won't do that. God has no business being in the pig pen, and he has no desire to be there, but he is absolutely welcoming of you to get up out of the pig pen and come to where he is. We're we're just fortunate that God receives people from the pig pen. The second thing is they will take responsibility. Look at the fact that the prodigal says, I have sinned. I've sinned against you and God. I've worked with a lot of people who said they were repentant, but when, you, when it came right down to it, they were still going to blame everybody else for what happened. Still somebody else's fault. Still the situation's fault. You know. And by the way, one of the, one of the biggest marks of a rebellious person is they can never take responsibility for their own wrongdoing. It's always someone else's fault. Number three, they understand that things have changed. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is so important. I hope if you're taking notes, you'll write this down. A truly repentant person knows that they cannot dictate the terms of their own recovery. I'll say it again because it's so important. A truly repentant person knows they cannot dictate the terms of their own recovery. He cannot determine the parameters of how he should come home. He is saying, I'm willing to start at ground level. I'm willing to start at the bottom and and build a relationship back up. I cannot tell you how many guys I've worked with over the years where there's been an affair, there's been something where they almost tore apart their marriage, and now there's a chance at reconciliation, but he wants to dictate at what level he's coming back into the relationship, but you can't do that unless you're willing to start at the bottom and work your way up. That's, That's not really repentance. And then number four, submitting to the process. Please make me a servant. There is a process for recovery. And one of the things about going through things where I make bad decisions and bad choices, I deal with the consequences of those bad choices, there's going to be a process to dealing with those things. Now, if I, I'll give you an example, and I don't want to get too far off the beaten path, but when I very first started at New Spring, I worked with a a group of of, um, uh, men who had um, been involved in some things on the computer they shouldn't have been involved in, looking at things they shouldn't have been looking at. And one of the things I said to them in that first meeting is, all right, you're going to not have any computers that are not in the middle of your home. Um, Your spouse is going to have the password to computers. You're not going to be on them when nobody else is home. We're going to put parental guards, uh, very strict parental guards on your phone. Like there was a whole list of things that were going to happen that were going to be part of the recovery process. And about half of the guys said, no, I don't think so. Well, that's not repentance, because a repentant, heart, a repentant heart says, if that's the process, then I'm going to do the process. If that's what it takes, then that's what I'm going to do. So, let's say you have a person in your life, looking at this biblical model from the prodigal son, what should you do? How should you be thinking? First of all, know that you can't force someone to make healthy choices. You cannot come to their senses for them. It would be lovely if you could. And I think, I think that's what we grieve when we love somebody who's making bad choices, and it is a, it is a grieving process. Don't, don't kid yourself. Don't think that you're the only one who's grieving. You're, you're doing the right thing. It is normal to grieve. It is normal to feel those feelings of loss because it's like, I, I wish I could help them, but right now they're not receiving help. That is normal to be grieving, but the Bible says we grieve as those what? Who, who, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. 
We grieve with hope because we know that we serve a God who brings things that are dead back to life. But you do need to know you can't come to their senses for them. Why did the father not keep the kid from leaving? Why did he write the check and let him go? There's a story that my pastor in Oklahoma, before I went to work at New Spring, used to love to tell the story about little Billy in Sunday school. And there's always one little kid in Sunday school. I used to be the one little kid in Sunday school who could not sit still, fidgeted the whole time, stood up. I'm, I'm off the charts, diagnosed, tested ADHD. Um, and so when I was a kid, but we didn't know anything about that when I was a kid. I was just, they just said I was terribly hyper. Um, and I, you know, I'm bouncing off the walls during Sunday school, so I get this. So little Billy is like that, and Billy keeps standing up during the lesson. He's not supposed to stand up. Everybody's supposed to sit down. The Sunday school teacher keeps saying, Billy, sit down, sit down, sit down. Eventually, the Sunday school teacher goes over and puts his hands on Billy's shoulders and sits him down in the seat. And uh, Billy looks up at him and he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? The father knew that if the son was, listen, if the son was already in the far off country in his heart, keeping him home wasn't going to change anything. And we have to understand that we cannot bar the door. We can't keep somebody from doing something because we physically block them from it. Ultimately, the question is, where is their heart? Paul had to deal with that in 1 Corinthians. Now, if you want to understand 1 Corinthians, it is very much as though, if you thought of, like, think of two I haven't seen any of these shows since I was a teenager, and I'm ashamed I watched it back when I was a teenager, but if you think about two casts of an MTV reality TV show, that they suddenly get saved and start a church, that's very much like the church at Corinth. It's messy in a beautiful way, because they're trying to figure out how to follow God, but they have a lot of weird questions. They have a lot of weird questions. And so we, get, we don't see their questions, we only see Paul's response to the questions, right? But they ask, here's the deal, they're, they're people getting saved, but it's also a very dangerous time to get saved. Because you could, you could be in real bad trouble. So what was happening is in the church of Corinth, you had people get saved and their spouse would say, I don't think I can stay with a person who's a believer because I might get in trouble or maybe they just don't want to be with a believer and so they want to leave him. So they're writing this urgent letter to Paul. What do you do when your spouse says, I don't want to be married to you anymore because you're a believer in Christ? And what Paul said in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen is, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. Why? Because you cannot bar the door. You cannot force somebody to do something by keeping them in a location. But I will say this, it's important to be the kind of person a lost person wants to come home to. I want to be, in, in my life, for the people that have lost their way, I want to be the first person they think of when they come to their senses, just like the father was the first person that the prodigal son thought of when he came to his senses. The first person he thought, my dad, he's the kind of person I could come home to. I want to be, by the way, this is why church is so important. So many people have this idea that church is, is, like a, is like a place where we get together and do the religious thing. It is not that church when it is, as supposed, when it, as it is supposed to be is a lighthouse and a hospital. And it should be the first place people know they can come home to if they're ready to turn around. They should know this is a safe place for me, full of people that will be safe for me to find my way back. By the way, can I ask you a question? This is a side point. <clears throat> why was he eating the pods? Why did he want to eat the pods? The Bible says they didn't give him any, so he didn't get any, but why did he want to eat the pods? I mean, wouldn't you assume, as I do, that he asked? The Bible says he wanted to eat the pods, but no one would give him any. I would take that to mean he literally asked. Why would he be doing that? There's only two possible reasons. The first is that he wasn't getting paid, but I doubt that. Why would you work if you weren't getting paid? You know why I think that happened? I think he had always had a problem with squandering money, and I think he was squandering whatever money he was getting paid in that job. 
Could be there's someone in your life that you would go, surely now they'll get it. At the place that they're at now, surely they'll get, and then they still do the same thing they've always done. And you think, I just figured surely they would get it. But the thing about it is, it has to be their timing when they come to their senses. It has to be the moment when they get it. Now, why does the father not try to convince the son to come home? And this is important because sometimes in our Christian world, I think we have the impression that God has commissioned us to set everybody straight. It's what social media looks like sometimes. This is shouting matches. I talked about this yesterday on social media. It's like God has, has called me to set the world straight. Can I set you free in the name of Jesus from that? It's a waste of time. Why does the father not do that? Because can we agree, first of all, there's nothing wrong with trying to persuade someone to do the right thing. Look at Matthew 18. It's very clear that it's, it's a good thing to try to persuade somebody to do the right thing. But on the other hand, you need to know that you cannot, for, you, there's not an argument that you're going to have that's going to be the magic pill that's going to cause somebody to turn around. The thing is, we hold on to what we firmly decide to do. There's a, there's a theory in psychology, we teach our early psychology students something called confirmation bias. And it, means, it talks about how we deal with incoming information based off of our beliefs. There are certain things that I believe with an open palm. I, I, you know, I'm pretty neutral about it, don't have really strong feelings about it. I once worked for Honda early on in my 20s uh, as a service manager. At the time, I was convinced that Hondas were the best value on the road for the money. Maybe I still feel that way, I don't know, but I hold it with an open palm. You're not going to offend me by suggesting to me that that's not true and you could present evidence. I might change my mind, who knows. But I'm, I'm, I'm good with, with, I'm very neutral about it. But there are other things that I hold with a closed fist, like the fact that my wife is a good woman. I firmly believe that and I'm not open to being convinced of, any, uh, of anything to the contrary. There are certain beliefs that we hold very, very firmly. And what confirmation bias says is that our brain, without our even trying to do this, our brain pays attention to evidence that proves our firmly held beliefs to be correct, and it ignores or rejects evidence that proves our beliefs to be incorrect. Now we even have data that shows that the pain centers of our brain light up when we hear credible evidence that says something we firmly believe is not true. That's why conservatives want to watch one news station. People who aren't conservative want to watch another news station. None of us want to hear any, any idea that what we be firmly believe to be true isn't true. It's painful. And so when you're talking to a person who's chosen to be rebellious and they're choosing to go in a, in a wrong direction, giving them an argument is not going to cause them to turn around. They're not going to come and ring your, your doorbell, ding dong. Hey, the argument you gave me was so profound that today I've decided to turn my life around. You know, it's not like when you're in one of these Facebook conversations, somebody comes to your home and goes, what you said on Facebook yesterday? I've changed my political affiliation. I've changed my denomination. And, uh, you know, those quotes that you post, the little inspirational things, just amazing. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what you'll notice. If you try to use arguments to win somebody back, here's what you'll notice. First thing is you'll notice justification. I get why that would normally be wrong, but here's why it's not wrong in my case. I've heard that so many times in my office. I'm used to it by now. Pastor, I know it would be wrong for me to do this under any other circumstance, but if you hear my story, I'm sure you'll agree with me that in my case, it's okay. That's justification. The second thing is argument boosting. Here's evidence why my argument is right. Hey, if you're a debater, you know that you can find evidence. If you have something that you want to prove, you can find evidence, and if you interpret it creatively, you'll find a way to make it sound like your argument's right. Blame throwing, it's not my fault. Button pushing, if I can get you to misbehave, then the focus won't be on me anymore. So I'll try to push your buttons so then I can get you worried about your behavior and then you won't focus on me anymore. Or the victim escape, which is like the last, the last 
thing that people will do. And I say escape, like I, I, I used to, when I was at Pensacola, I would call the wrestling matches because I was a broadcasting student. And you would see, they would get this guy into a lock and then there would be that one technique they would do that could always get him out of that, that escape. The victim thing always works for this person because eventually they'll just say, oh, well, I guess you're just perfect, aren't you? You're just perfect and I'm terrible and fine, whatever. I'm a terrible person, go ahead. I'm, you know, I'm obviously not at your level. You're, that victim thing is like the last thing. Well, if I can't get it out by justification, blame throwing, all that, I'll eventually just play the victim card and I'll get out of this. And then we kind of contribute to the problem because there's some things that we do to juice up our arguments that doesn't work very well. One thing is we, we try repetition. We just try repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Mom's in the room. Let me ask you a question. Your little kiddos, when they go like this, like when you're standing there at church in the lobby and you're, you know, it's after the service, and your little kid is there and they're going, mom, 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 mom. What are you thinking? Because I know what the rest of us are thinking, answer that kid. But you know what, mom has learned to tune that out. Why? Because she's heard it enough times and it's so repetitive, eventually you just learn to tune out. Because that is human nature, we tune out repetitive things. See, you need to be on the record about what is true, but you don't need to be a broken record about what is true. It's important that you say, because some of us are afraid to be on record. We need to be on record and say, that's what you're doing is not okay. But on the other hand, if that is the only thing they ever hear from us and we hit it and we hit it and we hit it and we hit it and we hit it, they will eventually become professional at tuning that out and they won't listen anymore. They'll get numb to it. The second thing is intensity. Sometimes we just get really intense with our arguments, right? Problem with intensity is it's on a pendulum. And we'll go from being really intense. If a person's really intense in their argument, then the pendulum will swing the other way and it'll be really light. And the calibration of the correct amount of serious is never there. It either is way, way, way too serious or it's not serious enough. And that person is going to not know what to expect from you. When they see you coming, they're not going to know whether to duck or pucker. Like, are they going to punch me or kiss me? I don't know. Like, it's one, like, they're, they're kind of an extreme. So the other thing is we'll try to do logic traps. Well, I think, and I've had people who tell me, now, pastor, I wish you would add such and such to a sermon because I've thought about it, and this negates every argument any atheist has ever come up with. If you would add this to a sermon, it it would be the thing that would cause people who are complete atheists to believe in God. And I think to myself, well, thanks for sharing that. It's surprising Jesus didn't mention it in the Sermon on the Mount. But still, thanks. I appreciate it. But we get this idea that somehow I will trap somebody with my logic, like a prosecuting attorney. You know, they teach prosecuting attorneys, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Because you're trying to direct it in a certain way. And we think, well, I'm going to direct them in a certain way. And then they'll have to conclude what I've concluded. Trust me, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then the final thing is guilt trips. Maybe if I put a guilt trip on them, can I tell you, guilt is not a motivator. We talked about that yesterday. Shame is not a motivator. Godly sorrow is a motivator, but a guilt trip won't work. So the things that you should do, I said before, be on the record, but don't be a broken record. Second thing is consistency is better than intensity. So be consistent. Stand by your convictions. Tell the truth. But do it in a way. Remember what, again, I said this earlier. I said said this in the service this morning. What did the Bible tell us Jesus was full of? Grace and truth. Interesting. Because it didn't say Jesus had grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. So if I'm going to be Christ-like, what does that mean? It means that when I talk to somebody who's making bad choices, I need to ask myself, is what I said full of both grace and truth? and truth. I cannot afford, this is what I would say, I cannot afford to let off on grace, and I cannot afford to let off on truth. Both of those gas pedals need to be to the floor. 
Understand that there's no such thing as a logic transplant. Maybe the doctors will get good at it at some point. I can say, doctor, I'm pretty smart and they're pretty dumb, so if you could just take whatever it is that I'm thinking and transplant it into their head, it just doesn't work that way. And then remember that guilt is never the goal. It's not the goal to make somebody feel guilty. It's the goal to help somebody see where they're at and where they could be. We talked about that yesterday. I want to close with this because, and by the way, I hope this is helpful. I have to tell you, dealing with somebody in your life who's making bad choices may be the hardest thing you ever do. Maybe the hardest thing that you ever do. And doing it in a way that honors God, that's a challenge. And I'm going to be praying for you in that. But I also want to talk to you about the fact that it's important that you not grieve as those who have no hope, as Paul said. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, preached a sermon about parents who bury their kids alive. He said there were far too many parents who are burying their kids. And what he, what he meant was a parent who basically says, you might as well be dead to me because you're making these bad choices. And, and Spurgeon was saying, but there's still hope for that, for that kid. At New Spring, we've seen over and over as people that other Christians gave up on finally came to their senses. And thank the Lord we've been a place where people have felt like this is, a, this is a place where I can come to my senses just as this church is a place where somebody can come to their senses. I remember we were doing something called Judgment House. If, you, if you're not familiar with Judgment House, it's a, uh, it's a walkthrough drama put on by volunteers in the church, not actors. Um, and it's, it's an interesting way that it's done. It's not, it's, it's not um, slick. It's just very straightforward. It's a presentation. Usually in the, in the Judgment House script, as the tour groups come through and they see each scene, you, you, you come to know three characters in the drama. One is a person that you feel certain they're going to go to hell when they die based off, off of the choices that they're making. If you're not familiar with Christianity, but you would still think if this is what this is about, this person's going to go to hell. And then you meet one person who has decided to trust Christ with their life. And then there's a person who's a very good person. And a lot of people go through the drama thinking, well, that person, of course, also would go to heaven but it's a person who hasn't placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then we have a scene that depicts judgment. We have a scene that depicts hell. We have a scene that depicts heaven. Then we have an invitation room. In the years that we've done Judgment House, we've had you know around 8,000 people will take the tour. Um, so we'll do it for six to eight nights. And I have the joy of leading one of the invitation rooms. So we usually do two invitation rooms. But for me as a pastor, it's, it's, like, it's like putting a kid in a candy store. I get to present the gospel every 10 minutes to another group of 40 people. They just keep coming in the room and I get to talk about the gospel and um, give them an opportunity to accept Christ. Now what we would do is we would, we would walk through the sinner's prayer with them and then we would say, if you prayed to receive Christ, would you put your hand up in the air? We're going to put a packet of materials in your hand that you can take home with you. Um, because we've learned from experience, not everybody will get up and walk out of the room, but we can at least put a, put a packet of materials in the hand. And then we'll say, now if you, if you took that packet, would you also be willing to talk to an encourager who would, who would like to pray with you and um, celebrate this decision with you? And uh, so you get pretty good at reading the room. We would have a lot of church youth groups sign up to come and do this. And a lot of times church groups, we just didn't see a lot of movement in. Um, by the way, if you're interested in knowing how many people would make a decision at a typical judgment house, it was over 10% for us. Um, which if you think about it is a, is a major number of people that God would bring to us just by a simple presentation of the gospel. Folks, people just need to know about Jesus. Um, but so I see this church group come in and I think I'm not going to see a lot of movement in this group. And there were a couple of walk-ins in the group as well. A couple of guys dressed pretty nicely. One probably 60, one probably 30. I thought maybe youth director and senior pastor, I don't know. Um, but then I would eventually learn these were walk-ins. They got added to the group. I give the 
I give the prayer, some people raise their hands, but I notice the 30-year-old who's sitting right here raises his hand, right? And I also notice the 60-year-old back in the back is looking, and I start to see tears coming down his, his face, right? So I think to myself, though, do they still use that, that term, too, too cool for school? Do people even say that anymore? I, I thought, this is definitely going to be a guy who's too cool for school. He'll take the packet, but when I offer for people to get up and leave, he's not going to walk out and do that. But as soon as I said that, he, he popped up like, you know, kernel of popcorn off of a hot plate. Just up, up he went and went to go pray. And the 60-year-old walks up to me as everybody's being dismissed, and he throws his arms around me and hugs me. This is one of the few times in my life where I've had to ask somebody to back off a hug a little bit so I could breathe. And uh, he told me that that boy in the front row is my son. And then he just, through tears, he was having a hard time talking to me. He, he just, he held up his hand like this and he said, five years, five years. He said, there've been five years where his life has been off the rails and his mom and I have prayed every day for five years. God, turn his life around. God, do something with our son. We don't know what to do. We're at our wit's end. We don't know how to help him. Five years. And he said, I just want you to know this was just 10 minutes for you tonight, but it's been five years for us. I just want to tell you, whoever it is in your life that's making bad decisions, there's still time. And the Bible says, and I didn't have this verse in, in my notes, the Bible says that God is devising ways to bring home those who have been separated from him. Isn't it a lovely thought that God is consistently building a new road to him from where your loved one is? There's always a new road because God is at work saying, I, I want them to come home. I'm making pathways for them to come home. They're still going to have to be their choice. They're still going to have to come to their senses and they're still going to have to submit to the process. And they're still gonna, but you know what? There's a path. There's a path to come home. So I'm, I want to encourage you tonight. Don't bury them alive. There's hope yet. But do have healthy boundaries. Don't you, go, don't, don't you go into the pig pen. You stay where God has called you to be. You pray for them. Pray like you've never prayed before. Pray like you've never prayed before because this job is over your pay grade. You cannot get them home. It will take God to get them home. Pray like you've never prayed before. And then can I, can I tell you this and I'll let you go. Uh, well, and then Pastor Ryan will be up. You need to prepare for the party. The fattened calf killed the fattened calf. Bible language scholars tell us that the implication is this was the fattened calf that had been stored for this moment. Isn't that a special thought? That even before there was ever any indication the son was coming home, the father is saying, but I have plans for the party. There's going to be a party. The church of Jesus Christ of the United States would look completely different if we would start planning for the parties. And say, I know this person's coming home. I don't know when, but I know they're coming home. And when they do, we're going to celebrate. I may not be able to restore what was lost for them, but I can celebrate with them that they're on the right path. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.